Um, okay, a couple things. One, this is fun. Um, I filled up a whole Staples notepad with all the prayers from the past year. There you go. So now we're done with that. So that's a lot of prayers. The Lord's answered many of them. Um, he, well, yes, he has. Maybe not the way you would hope, but he did answer them. Um, it's Bernard of Clairvaux. You may have read about him today in your section from uh, Holy Women. Bernard of Clairvaux has that great line where he says, in prayer, the Lord either gives you what you ask or something better, right? And the something better, though, is always defined on the Lord's terms, not yours. So sometimes you pray, you know, heal me, and you end up dying, but maybe dying is something better. Um, so that's one thing. Also, we're a little pressed for time now. We probably need to work this out. Um, we've got some, we've got some uh, college kids, but, you know, Wheaton College uh, Chapel is mandatory, and I think chapel may be at 10.30, and so the college kids, can you pass it back to Kirby? The college kids need to leave at 10.15, but um, obviously that's fine some weeks, some weeks it's not. I don't want to press you to get out of here, so we'll make some arrangement in the coming weeks to see what we can do uh, after 10.15, okay? Anything from last week? I was at a marriage retreat reconnecting with my wife. That's why you're sitting right up front. At the marriage retreat, I think she sat in the last row, right? That isn't true. No, that's true. That's right. Okay. This is big progress. Um, It's bad when you're a pastor and you go home and say, hey, what did you think of my sermon? And she says, I didn't hear any of it. Okay. All right. Well, I'm glad it it had an impact. (laughs) Ah, Yes, they do know Claire. Claire is crazy. Um, Okay, anything from last week? Last week you talked about Sarah, yes, okay. And Sarah, of course, is a type of Mary. And Mary then is sort of the prefigurement of all holy women, um, which I talked about the week before, so good. Did everybody get a chance to look at the book? Okay, good, all right. And and it wasn't a long chapter. It was about eight pages, maybe. Um, Just to get you started, though, I want to give you this article. Um, I told you a couple weeks ago in preparation for this book, you remember I had mentioned the Pope's visit to Germany and how he had this great thing on Luther? Well, lo and behold, that, that maybe it was the next Monday. Um, I talked to you on Friday. The next Monday, a guy from First Things, and First Things is this fairly academic theological journal. It goes out once a month maybe. Um, and Richard John Newhouse, who used to be a Lutheran and then became a Catholic, he died about two years ago, he was the founder of this magazine, become very popular in theological circles. Well, a guy emails me from First Things and says, will you write a review from a Lutheran perspective on the Pope's visit to Germany? So, um, of course, I was eager to do it. So here's the review. I think it may appear today on their, on their Internet. They have a daily Internet journal that sort of goes, and I think it may appear there. But I give it to you just as sort of um, follow-up to what I talked about a couple weeks ago, Okay. So, uh, actually, I had a different title. I think I called it The Pope on My Turf, because he was in Germany. Um, they changed the title to A Lutheran Reflects on Benedict XVI's German Visit. <laughs> I, think, I think I actually had a longer title. And you know, when you write articles, the key is short titles are better. Um, but gosh, how do you sum up a Lutheran reaction to the Holy Father's visit? So I think I said it, it was like The Pope on My Turf, A Lutheran Reacts... Um, to the papal visit to the land of his fathers, or something like that. Of course, they said, a Lutheran reacts to Pope Benedict's visit. So here you go. Um, And thankfully, they didn't edit 
actually anything. So uh, you see a couple, they had a couple grammatical things here, a comma, I had a double comma, and anyways, here it is. When the door was closed on the meeting between Pope Benedict XVI and the leaders of the German Lutheran Church on September 23, 2011, for some in the USA it signaled the possibility of an open door to reunification, joining back together, while for others it signaled the need to nail another 95 theses or more to the doors of our churches while shouting, Papam esse ipsum verum antichristum, the Pope is the very Antichrist. Okay? Of course, that was the confession in the 16th century, what you need to ask yourself, is that still the confession today? The blogosphere erupted with commentary on the Pope's speech. Some offered half-hearted appreciation for the Pope and his willingness to engage the ecumenical issues on the table. Unfortunately, from this latter group, at least from the perspective of one within the Lutheran Church, it appeared to be the same old routine. Begin by stating how nice it is to have a Pope who has some knowledge of Luther. Make note of the fact that the Pope is a true scholar and then proceed to blast him backhandedly by concluding, however, it grieves me to say, he is still the Antichrist. And if you just Google the Lutheran reaction, this was almost verbatim what happened. Everybody said, it's so wonderful, the Pope knows a lot about Luther. And wow, he's the brightest Pope since Pope Gregory the Great in the 4th century or 5th century, but he's still the Antichrist. And then, of course, all the comments, you know. I'll give you an example. Matt Harrison, synodical president, had lunch with the Archbishop of St. Louis, Uh, newer archbishop, the archbishop invited him to his house. There were actually people who wrote in and said that he shouldn't have had lunch because he had lunch with the Antichrist. Okay? Now that's... Yeah, good. So, uh, and that's been, that was certainly, that was certainly the confession in the 16th century. Remember why they confessed he was the Antichrist in the 16th century, though? Because they tried to kill the Lutherans. Had nothing to do theologically. It had to do with the fact that they said to Luther, "You're excommunicated, and if you continue to preach, we're going to kill you." So um, you have to ask: Is the Pope still trying to kill you today? So, uh, but people reacted that way. You know, you were on unholy ground, and you entered his lunchroom, and you shouldn't have, and you shouldn't have, and people got too, people got too much time on their hands. Yep. Yeah, actually, at the end of the day, it was because they tried to kill him. You remember what Luther said? We'll fully accept the the. We'll fully accept the Pope. Just tell him not to kill us. So um, it's in the Lutheran Confessions. Unfortunately, we got a. So much of our history has been defined. Well, I'll just keep reading and you'll get it. Yet this reaction, regardless of how predictable it may have been, was not without significance. In fact, and I will say, it was a predictable reaction. I actually can't look at it anymore because guys are so predictable. In fact, what the American Lutheran reaction to the Pope's visit to Germany revealed was that the question once queried by Karl Broughton, he's a Lutheran, is still apropos. Quote, are Lutherans emigres or exiles? Certainly, there is a strand of Lutheranism which sees itself as exiled from Rome, and in response, many of its members have made their way back, quote-unquote, home. Father Richard John Newhouse of Blessed Memory, Professor Michael Root, he taught at a Lutheran seminary, now he's at Catholic University of America, Dr. Adam Cooper, the protege and best student of John Kleinig. Isn't that interesting? And of course, Adam Cooper says to John Kleinig all the time, you're really a Catholic. He said, if this is what you call a Catholic, then I am a Catholic. Okay? I had a long conversation with John Kleinig in the car coming home about how um, using icons and prayers to the saints might be a good way to increase people's piety. That's for another discussion. But Adam Cooper was a student of John Kleinig and really best friends with him, young guy, PhD at Durham. 
So Dr. Adam Cooper of John Paul II Institute for Marriage and Family in Melbourne, just to name a few. Most Lutherans of a more conservative bent, particularly the LCMS, the Wisconsin Synod, on the other hand, have been more apprehensive about swimming the Tiber River. The Tiber is the river in Rome. When this apprehension, what this apprehension indicates, however, is that many conservative Lutherans of the present day see themselves as emigres, not exiles. They presume we exiled ourselves. No one forced us out, we left. And as we stomped out the door nearly 500 years ago, our bitterness has left us to define ourselves by what we hate rather than by what we love. An analogy. If your girlfriend leaves you, all you can remember are the reasons you loved her. But if you leave your girlfriend, you only remember her faults. Many conservative Lutherans believe that in 1517, we left our girlfriend. And ever since, we have only been able to recall her faults. This, in turn, has left us in a rut, one which extends to the present day. However, maybe in this gray-haired German pontiff, who sometimes struggles to ascend the stairs of the high altar at St. Peter's Basilica, you ever seen him try to go up those things? Can't do it. And always appears winded near the end of the proper preface in the Eucharistic liturgy. Maybe in him we can find a glimpse of a bright future for the church Catholic, small c, where we truly are one, ut unum sint. That's what Jesus says in John 10. I pray that they may be one, ut unum sint in Latin. Why? Precisely because even in his latter years, he continues, and maybe more than ever, to be defined by what he loves and not by what he hates. He loves his homeland, Germany, so he makes his third apostolic visit there in six years, the most of any country except Spain. He loves the dignity of the human person, so he once again spent heart-rending time with victims of abuse. He loves young people, so even after a mass in Erfurt and a flight to Freiburg, he stayed awake long enough to exhort the youth of Germany at a prayer vigil to be the light of the world. And he loves his own church enough that he was willing to bid them to do what would seem to us Lutherans to be unthinkable for Catholics, to learn from Luther. From the Pope's speech, how do I receive the grace of God? The fact that this question was the driving force of his whole life never ceases to make an impression on me. In my view, this is the first summons we should attend to in our encounter with Martin Luther. How do I receive the grace of God? Another important point, God, the one God, creator of heaven and earth, is no mere philosophical hypothesis regarding the origins of the universe. This God has a face and he has spoken to us. He became one of us in the man Jesus Christ, who is both true God and true man. Luther's thinking, his whole spirituality, was thoroughly Christocentric. What promotes Christ's cause was for Luther the decisive hermeneutical criterion for the exegesis of sacred scripture. Basically, Luther was a Christ first man. This presupposes, however, that Christ is at the heart of our spirituality and that love for him, living in communion with him, is what guides our life. So now me again. We're quick to judge our separated brethren of the Roman Catholic Church. We are even sadly quick to hate. Often conservative Lutherans mark time beginning in 1517, and since then, not many good things have come out of Rome. Until now, maybe. What the Pope has identified for us is an ecumenical paradigm for true reunification after the heart of Jesus. Love. Not a love in, ab in abstraction, but a love incarnate in action. The Pope has made the first move in this endeavor. We might be asking what response would best complement his offer. So, um, 
You're welcome. Um, so here's the thing. Um, I, I give you that as a precursor to this book, because as I read this book, I thought, I haven't read much. I've only read the first chapter. As I read the first chapter, I thought, this is the same sort of thing Luther would have written. What did you notice overall about this chapter on St. Hildegard if you read it? What did you notice? I mean, I noticed a lot of stuff that I want to talk about in the next, you know, 30 minutes. But what was sort of the overarching theme of the whole thing? I noticed really two things in particular. Anybody? Yeah. I will help you. I'm sorry. I'll help you out. Uh, she recognized the authority of the church. And Now, remember, I don't want to say Catholic church because what year was this, roughly? It was the 12th century, right? So, uh, you know, the 12th century... Um, yeah, there's only one church. Well, yeah, there's an east and there's a west, but there's an east and a west in 1054, but it's an east and a west of one church. And so um, I say in my dissertation, there was a time, the church has always been Catholic, but there was a time when the church wasn't Roman. Make sense? So there was a time when the church was Catholic, um, and it was one true church. That's the church that Jesus prays for in John chapter 10. So uh, in the 12th century, she put herself, so don't think she's putting herself under the authority of the Roman Catholic Church today. It's a whole different dynamic. But one thing I noticed was she puts herself, she is obedient. And not just obedient to anyone, she is obedient to the church. And that's important for us because um, it, didn't, it didn't start, I mean, frankly, it didn't start until the middle of the 19th century that Christians started to say, I am of equal authority with the church. Um, even the church in Europe today, the Lutheran church, and, you know, believe me, I know lots of people don't go to church, but even, you know, officially, people still understand that they are under the authority of the church. That doesn't mean that, you know, first and foremost, you're under my authority. It means, first and foremost, you're under the authority of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And the church then appoints people to be the head of the church. Um, obviously, in, in one tradition, that, you know, goes like this, pope, and then archbishops and cardinals and bishops and priests and, you know, kind of down the, down the map like that. In another tradition, in the European Lutheran tradition, it goes bishops, priests, and deacons. So a little simplified, but still the same biblical idea. So I did notice that as well. She was a woman who was obedient to the church, right? What else did you notice about her? That's it about St. Hildegard? I thought it was such a good story, I was going to name my next kid Hildegard. Actually, that would go well with August. Have a girl. May not be possible, but have a girl. Yes, she had a special ability to understand scriptures, but this goes along with um, the idea of obedience. Look at page 9. I was struck by this. Uh, First full paragraph, kind of halfway through the first sentence. Hildegard began to dictate the mystical visions that she had been receiving for some time to the monk Volmar, her spiritual director. Isn't that interesting? You know what a spiritual director is? Lots of Catholics have them. If you're a faithful Catholic, you have one. It would be, um, yes, it would be a slightly different from a confessor, but same idea. So in the church, you have people that can give you pastoral care. You have a pastor um, who should be your confessor. And then you will have people who are trained, could be lay or religious. By that, I just mean, you know, priest, brother, deacon, who would be your uh, spiritual director. And what do spiritual directors do? A bit, yeah. So if you had a spiritual mentor, what would you, what would you like from that person? 
part of the problem is we don't have these really formally in our church body, so roles get sort of jumbled up. But if you had a spiritual director, what would you want them to do? Yep. So it's different than counseling, which is professional. It's different than a confessor, which really is... One thing I've noticed is people like to talk a lot when they come to confession, which isn't bad, um, but oftentimes they spend maybe 30 minutes, and in 30 minutes they spend 20 minutes talking about how they got to the point of the sin, and then you know maybe five minutes talking about the sins. A confessor is really good for one thing, and that is to hear the confession. So I try to, I try to nudge people uh, to be, take this the right way, to be more efficient with their confession because... Um, that efficiency lends itself to order, and order is what Jesus wants. So there's a place to talk a lot, and there's a place to talk very little. Confession is very little. Give me, I often tell people, write all your sins down, and you'll come in and you'll just read them off the list. That way, it, it one, you can remember them then. You know, when you get nervous, you forget stuff. So you can remember them. And two, it sort of prevents people from you know, going from A to C and then maybe back to B, and then somehow they end up right here. So, um, But a spiritual director would be very good for conversation. Yeah. Yeah. That's very well said. Um, and I think, I think you actually, you had a great caveat there, which was um, in the church, we often think age matters and it does matter. But as you know, wisdom um, is sort of timeless. So there are some very good spiritual directors who are 35. There are some people who really need to be 70 to be a spiritual director, right? It's true. And what you have in the church, and unfortunately it's especially prevalent in more Protestant denominations, people often flee from youth. And then, of course, I say to people, I got in big trouble one time, but I can say it now because I only have about five weeks left. <laughs> that was a joke, Kirby. You can laugh. <laughs> um, I once said to someone who said, you can't tell me to do that. I'm older than you. It was in a new member class. And I said, without missing a beat. I may have even used a swear word, and that's why I got in trouble. But I, will, I won't use that now. I said, when I put a stole on, I am 2,000 years old. It was, in the, it was Williman. Oh, boy. Yeah, right. Yep. And that's the thing. Actually, it was William Williman, who was a Methodist bishop and now was dean of the chapel at Duke. He once said, you know, when people function within the office of the ministry, they're a lot older than they actually appear. And this is why St. Paul says, he says two things. Remember he says to Timothy, don't let people look down on you because you are young. Yeah, that's one. Um, I wanted that read at my ordination, but I don't think it got in. So he says, don't let people look down on you because you're young. And then St. Paul says, when I function as a pastor, I'm paraphrasing, but this I'm not paraphrasing. He says, I function in... Persona Christi. And you, of course, say, every Catholic priest I know said that. Guess what? Your Catholic priest didn't say it first. St. Paul did. St. Paul says, when I forgive your sins, I function in the person of Christ, which means however old Jesus is, that's how old St. Paul is. Okay? So spiritual director, good. So you'd find somebody who's wiser, a bit more mature, and actually a good spiritual director won't talk first. They will listen. Because it's like diagnosing an illness. If you go to the doctor, the doctor's going to say, talk to me. What's going on? What hurts? How you feeling? How can we get better? And a good doctor won't just walk in and say, oh, you got strep throat. Tell me about it. Or, oh, you have cancer. Or, oh, you got this. Doctors who jump to conclusions or diagnoses very quickly often are the ones who are wrong. <laughs> right? <laughs> Second opinion, yeah. 
Exactly right. That's why second opinions are important because the more people who can talk to you and dialogue with you, the better diagnosis you'll get. Not better, but more accurate. Yep, exactly. Yeah, and that, I think, um, well, let me just ask you, is the idea of the church as a community, is that prevalent in our day today? Good. So sometimes community is uh, an end in and of itself. Um, So yeah, you go, what I noticed about Atlanta is there are lots of big churches, and every big church is like a country club. And when I ask people, why do you go there? Very rarely do they say, we like the sermons, we like the service. They all say, our friends are there. Which is important, but it's not the be-all, end-all. It's actually a good way to get people in the door, but it's not, it's not what the church is you know, finally and fully about. So community, we, we have either taken it to an extreme or we've lost it where it's every man for himself. Right. And you hear people say all the time, I don't, I don't buy formal religion. Right? Um, but, you know, you buy formal education. You buy formal health care. But you don't buy formal religion. Well, that's true. Yeah, if you don't get your kids immunized, well, I'm not even going to ask if you don't get your kids immunized. I have my own feelings on that. But it does take, it is, um, oof, I'm not going to say it because that will get me into trouble. Um, no, Mary, see, t- lead me not into temptation. No, it is. it does take an interesting personality to say, as a lay person, and I mean lay person in any field, medical, education, financial, financial, for a lay person to say, I can do this as well as the professionals. It does take a very interesting person to do that. Like, I will manage all my own money. Sometimes you're successful. I will educate all my own kids. Sometimes you're successful. I will, you know, heal, or not heal, I will get my kids medication on my own, either home remedies, no doctors. Do you hear about this family who, they were Christians. I just heard about it on CNN a couple weeks ago, where they, their church said, you know, no medical help for your kids. And their kid was born and had some illness at birth, and they, the birth was at home, and they wouldn't take their kid to the hospital. The kid died. Now they're charging the parents with, like, involuntary manslaughter. So, um, you know, it takes, it takes, I think it's an, it's an act of hubris to say that, that I can do it better than somebody else. Um, but it takes certain folks who can kind of say that, and people do it in the church, too. I can do it on my own. Yeah. That is the most interesting thing. And, and I actually feel bad for teachers. My wife's been a teacher. Yeah, and my, and my dad's been a teacher for a long time. It's interesting how people can sort of say, I can do it better than you. What else in this, though? Look at page 10. I'll tell you what I noticed. Yeah, sure. Yep. Well, let me ask you first, what do you know about mystics? When you hear the word, what do you think? Good. Good, okay, because it's a very foreign, foreign idea to us. Um, so, uh, let's see. Well, I mean, it's sort of the key to the whole text. She's a mystic. Do you know other mystics? Any names come to mind? St. Francis of Assisi certainly had some visions, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, John of Revelation is a mystic. <laughs> You're having visions that can be verified to be visions given from God. People have visions all the time. I mean, people had visions about this sanctuary that I talked to one person. They were asked if they'd give money toward the window, and they said, we prayed about it, and we saw a different building in our future, and this wasn't the one. I mean, I know what they mean is it was our intention to, go, to do something different, but people say, oh, I had a vision about this, or I dreamt this. You ever heard that? 
I dreamt this. My husband was going to be in a car crash. Really? Well, I would have that day. It is, it is, um, it might be different than a dream because a dream has the connotation of being asleep. So you can have visions awake. Um, I'm trying to think of an example of where you may have seen this before. I mean, let me say this. Being a mystic um, is not child's play. And people who try to be mystical or try to be mystics, even good Christians, um, oftentimes are not doing it the way the Bible sort of prescribes to do it. Remember in the Bible, just think about when Paul talks about speaking in tongues. What does he say? Nobody can speak in tongues unless there's someone there to interpret. Because if you speak in tongues and no one's there to interpret, it's chaos. It's the same thing when people say, I had all these visions. And we say, well, let's test that. How would you test a vision to see if it's from the Lord or not? Yeah, so may, so good. That would be one thing. Um, I'm going to write on this board just so I can... Man, this is bad. Who rearranged the room? So one would be, is it biblical? Now, that doesn't mean that all your visions are biblical stories. It doesn't mean that every time you have a vision, it's, you know, now I dreamt the resurrection. But they at least fit within um, the biblical model. So you wouldn't, it's like when people say, I prayed to win the lottery. You know, yeah, you may have prayed that, but guess what? You can't find a place in the Bible where the Lord says, pray to win the lottery. Nor can you find a name of Jesus where he says, I'm the great lottery winner. Right? So partly, you need to think about mysticism almost like prayer. If you can find it in Jesus, you may be able to find it in a mystical vision. So you wouldn't have visions that tell you to do things that Jesus wouldn't tell you to do. So if you have a mystical, people say to me, I had a vision to divorce my wife. No, friend, you didn't. Right? Or as Jesus says in the Gospels, buster. That's the way he talks to people in the Gospels. One of the Greek words is really, an English translation is, hey, buster. You know, it's like, hey, friend, you didn't have that vision. Right? So it would have to be within the biblical model or the biblical paradigm or even more specifically within the name of Jesus. Okay? Well, how else would you judge a, a, a vision? Yeah, right. Yeah, I know, I know, yeah. I think she appeared with a big cheese head. That was a joke. Just relax, everybody. Cowhead. No, she, yeah, they're so good. Let's take, let's take any of those visions. Um, oftentimes, and this is a very Catholic thing. Lutherans, for some reason, our DNA is not, we don't operate this way. But let me, let me preface by saying this. It doesn't mean it's not true. Okay? Um, I once got into trouble because I said to someone, I got into a lot of trouble during my time here. I recall all these stories. I can remember my first circuit meeting where I said, the body and blood heals your body and your soul, which, of course, is Luther. He says, anything that heals your soul also heals your body. And a former district president tried to bring me up on heresy charges. Think about that. Your first, first ever circuit meeting. First ever. I show up, and we're doing a Bible study written by Abby's dad. And it was this whole thing about the Eucharist as the medicine of immortality. That is St. Ignatius. And I said, yeah, if I had somebody who just found out they had cancer, where's the first place I'd send them? To the Eucharist. And this guy called me voodoo and a heretic and threatened to call the district president. Welcome to the district. There you go. Okay. So, um, good thing I had Luther to back it up, which helped. But we often sort of dismiss these. So I once said to someone, if you find out you have cancer, I would send you to, uh, I'd send you to Lourdes to touch the water. Right? Because obviously things have been proven to happen there. Um, 
But in the Catholic Church, how does a vision get verified to be from the Lord and not from man? Do you know the process? One, it takes a heck of a long time. Like this thing in Wisconsin has been going on for about 150 years. Yeah, so good, that's, that's part of it. And, and, and we don't even want to go into that because that would be a whole different thing. But you're right, there needs to be some concrete, tangible realization that the Lord is working through somebody, Right? It is, but also to verify sometimes the visions, like what happened at the vision. Was somebody healed or did you just see something? But you know the term devil's advocate? You know, that comes from the Catholic Church. What they would do is when they were trying to verify visions and miracles, they would hire pagans, usually doctors, philosophers, scientists, and they would come in and try to disprove what had been seen. And if they couldn't disprove it, it was considered true. That's the term devil's advocate. And it's especially true with making saints. They'd bring saints in and, you know, uh, for instance, John Paul II just became blessed. In fact, his blood was here in the United States about two weeks ago or three weeks ago. They have one vial of his blood from on his deathbed. They took a vial of blood, um, and that's considered a first-class relic because it was inside his body. I think it's very cool. In fact, I watched the, um, I got up at about 2 a.m. The week before, Abby had watched the royal wedding at 2 a.m. I got up at 2 a.m. to watch the beatification of John Paul II Sunday morning. But I was moved to the point of tears when the woman who had been healed by John Paul II actually carried his blood to Pope Benedict for a blessing. And they sang this great, um, they sang this great hymn that had been written. John Paul II, one of his first speeches was called Open Wide the Doors to Christ, basically let Christ come into the world. And they had written this hymn called Open Wide the Doors to Christ. And I'm sitting on the couch, you know, like this, and Abby's like, what is wrong with you? I'm like, well, it was moving. This woman who had, who had, um, um, had Parkinson's, like John Paul II. She was about 40 years old, a nun. She'd been healed by him. Now, here's the thing. They took it through all the medical examinations, and they found out, guess what? It was true. Somehow, some way. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I've never done, but I've, I've heard about it, is in Rome. I couldn't find it. They have the stairs that Jesus walked to go up to Pontius Pilate. The holy stairs. And um, they were given as a gift by, um, by Constantine. And you can now still, you can walk these stairs. And people go up on their knees and say prayers. And you see pictures of it, and it's actually quite moving to know that, no, they're not in the Vatican. They're actually outside the Vatican City proper, which is why I've never seen them. You have to take a bus about five minutes. Do you know where it's at? Have you done it? may have been the church Luther stayed at when he was in Rome. I don't remember. Where's it at? Where's it, what? Yeah, right, right. But it is very moving. But, but what else? To, to say, you know, this vision is, is from the Lord and not from man. You need a biblical paradigm. You need to be able to test it. And what you've seen in St. Hildegard, what else do you need? We just talked about it over here. You need someone to interpret it. And, of course, she used um, a monk, and she also used Bernard of Clairvaux, which is a pretty good start. (laughs) Imagine if you were able, that's like saying today, I'm going to go talk to Pope Benedict to see what he thinks about my vision. I mean, that doesn't happen, right? Bernard of Clairvaux is huge, great hymn writer, um, great theologian. So you need someone, you need a biblical paradigm. You need, really, a name of Jesus in there. It needs to be something Jesus would do. And you need someone to tell you, yes, this is from the Lord, which means... If you're going to be a visionary, a mystic, you need to be thoroughly obedient and thoroughly willing to come under somebody else's care. 
So the reason I think we don't have many mystics in the United States today is many people don't fit that criteria. <laughs> well, think about if you read the section on Hildegard, what do they say? I've got a book for you right here. We're going to take five minutes and let Kirby read the chapter, and then we'll come back to her. What did you notice? I noticed one thing, and actually it answers your question. What's the, what's the value of a vision um, if it's already in the scriptures? Yes, good. I was just going to say, tell me about a good sermon. What is the mark of a good sermon? And please, don't give me the, I mean, thankfully none of you went to seminary. Except for you, buddy. Keep your mouth shut in the back. May the queen of angels be praised. Um, tell me about a good sermon. What does a good sermon entail? And don't say, oh, law and gospel. I know that's the old Lutheran thing. That's true. Thank you. It has one point, okay? As Bruzek always says to the vicars, you're not good enough to say two things. That's actually true. I'm not good enough to say two things. Um, he may be good enough to say two things, but not three things, okay? So you say one thing, one thing, and that's the same thing with a vision. A good vision isn't going to tell you 15 things, because that's chaos. It'll tell you one thing. What else is the mark of a good sermon? Thank you. It is relevant. So um, let's just let's say it this way. It's ordered. It's, in some sense, it's very simple. Sermons should not be so complex you can't understand them. Um, it is, it's attentive to culture, which means it's relevant. So if I stand up today and say, you all should go out and sell your pigs and give all your money to the church, you're going to say, we don't freaking own pigs. It is. Yep, so there's some, so it prompts people to do something, prompts to action. What else? I think about a good sermon. Well, let me say this. Think about a bad sermon. Then you know what a good sermon should be. Good, so it wasn't simple. It wasn't clear. What else about a, what else, what else about a bad sermon? Rambling, good. Yeah, right. Yeah, I, there's one. There's a church that I know of where people have left kind of at a rapid pace because every sermon is either about how Catholics are going to hell or um, we shouldn't, you know, gay people are wrong and bad. Now, here's the thing. There are places to talk about those sorts of things, but you don't preach every sermon saying all gay people are wrong, okay? So, good. It's always banging on you. What else? Yes. Good. So it shouldn't just be, aren't you a nice person, everything's okay, because everything isn't okay. Don't say it. Oh, okay. Okay, all right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm glad it wasn't me. She obviously still holds a grudge against this guy. No, I'm kidding. So, yeah, emergencies are never good. Yeah. Yes. Yep. So good. So a bad sermon would be one that just sort of either it either it's either too much of you're all okay, it's all okay, or it's too much of you ought to get out and do something about yourself, right? There's some balance there. What else? Yeah. Thank goodness. Hmm. Wow. I can't top that one. Okay. And he was leaving the ministry on Christmas Eve. Merry Christmas. Okay. Confess no scandal. Okay, that's a good sermon. It is. Yes, go ahead. Good, okay. So that's a cultural thing, but as you know in the United States, politics and theology don't mix very well, often. 
Um, so, yeah, sure it is. You been to the golf course on Sunday morning? It ain't Christian. Okay, go ahead. Good. I'm going to put that right. I'm going to give you sort of your summary right here. So um, let's just say biblical. What else? Abby? Oh, this is not good. Good. Why you haven't? This is very interesting. Go ahead. Yep. Okay. So, um, yeah, so let's just say, uh, let's say it like this. Old things in a fresh way. Okay? And, good. I just noticed we're getting to time, but let me, I, I do, no, 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 it's okay. It's, it, I know, but we pay people to do that. You shouldn't have to, all right. Um, yeah, pay you. Okay. We don't pay that much. Um, so, so here's the thing. Um, you didn't mention two things that I think characterize very bad sermons. Yeah, so um, it should have. Yeah, it should have some. Um, let's just say Christ is beginning, middle, and end. And what I don't mean is pointing to the gifts is not like every sermon should talk about baptism, or every sermon should talk about the Eucharist, because then sermons become predictable. Um, and sometimes people think kind of preaching a sacramental sermon is you talk about baptism a lot. That doesn't, that's not what it means. Two things that have, that have characterized preaching uh, in a negative way, traditionally kind of in the Lutheran church, are, one, sermons become like a theological lecture. You ever heard a sermon like this? So there's a theological point you're trying to prove. It's very didactic. If you're going to write a lecture for a college course, you start with your thesis Today we're going to talk about how atoms are da-da-da-da-da. And then you spend 90 minutes running them through how that happens. That's a great way to teach a Bible study. Today we're going to talk about St. Hildegard, and I want to give you this thing first to get us going. That is not the way you preach a sermon. Preaching a didactic sermon like that, or deductive sermon like that, is much like um, telling the punchline of the joke before the joke starts. If I come up to you and say, I'm looking for the guy who shot my paw, and then I tell you, a dog walked in with only three legs to a bar, it's not that funny, right? Okay? So the point is, sermons that only try to teach you something, and you've heard this before, where sermons are, okay, now open up to Revelation chapter 7. Now here St. Paul uses this strange word, and here it means this. Now it's in 16 other Bible verses, and save it for Bible study, friend. Buster. Save it for Bible study. So one is they become very much like a lecture, or two... And this is almost worse. Pastors preach sermons with no affect. You ever heard this before, where guys are like monotone as they preach? And, and it's almost like, it almost like the sermon becomes, and take this in the right way, like some sort of magical formula. If I just say all the right stuff, Jesus died for your sins, he loves you very much, you're justified by grace through faith, the sermon is going to work and you all are going to go out and say, by God, this is a great Christian life. When there's no excitement, there's no enthusiasm, there's no rhetoric, there's no cultural connection. And you hear this all the time, guys who sort of say, every sermon is, you've been justified by grace through faith, not by works, lest any man should boast. What I want to say is, buddy, we know that. Right? We know that. So one is, it's a lecture. Two is, there's no rhetorical connection, which means it doesn't connect to culture. 
Go ahead. Yes. Yes, where, you know, I had a pastor once growing up who used to cry in every sermon. What's that? He used to cry in every sermon. Now, it was touching at first. You're like, oh, man, he really believes in this kind of stuff. That's kind of interesting. That's close to crying every Sunday? That was a little shocking. Yeah, if I ever get dressed up as a biblical character, take me out back and shoot me, okay? Uh, That's on the radio now. Good. Someone will actually take me up on that. No, the point is, there was, it's very interesting when, um, when guys overdo it. Someone, someone famous once said, if you cry at your own words, they have no meaning or something like that. And it's actually true. So this pastor would come out every Sunday, and right when he got to the Jesus loves you more than anything, he'd start to get choked up, which is great one or two times. But when it happens all 27 weeks of Pentecost, you begin to think maybe he's faking, Right? Exactly. So there is another extreme, which is so much. So some balance. Basically, what we tell the vicars is this. Say what Jesus says, which doesn't always mean it's law and gospel, the old Lutheran way. Sometimes Jesus says nothing about how bad of a person you are. He just tells you how much he loves you. And sometimes all he tells you is, you're a miserable human being. And he never says, but it's all okay because I died for your sins. Right? So say what Jesus says in a way that people today can understand it, so you wouldn't talk about selling your pigs to pay for the church, and don't be fake. I mean, talk like a normal human being. And I think you have the same sort of thing going on with these visions. If the visions come out and they're not ordered, they're not simple, they're not attentive to the culture, what was the reason for her visions? She wanted to speak to the culture of the 12th century. Right? She was having visions of what happened to Jesus, and she wanted to say it in such a way that people in the 12th century could understand her. And and the key is, it wouldn't be a valid vision if she spoke them in such a way that only people in the 6th century could have understood her. Just like it's not a good sermon if you only speak like somebody in England in in the 1800s. Right? Go ahead. Uh, Good question. Do people not have visions today because our culture wouldn't take them seriously? That's it. Although I think... It might be more. I think people today have lost their imagination. Well, they don't. No, that's actually true. I mean, you remember, what does it say in the scriptures? If you want to, I mean, to, to receive gifts, you fast and you pray. And um, I've never seen anybody actually have a vision, except for when I was watching 60 Minutes on Easter Sunday, Mount Athos, which is the great holy mountain, and it's all men. They even have male animals, I think. Do they now allow female animals on so they can have no female animals? This was the mountain that Mary came up to, and Mary said, you know, apparently she came on a boat with John, I think, and said, this is the mountain I want for my people, and she was going to continue the church there, and now it's the Eastern Church. But it was very interesting. As guys were at Mass, they would go to, they'd go to the liturgy for eight or nine hours, and they said these guys had almost mystical experiences, and you could see it. As they were praying, their eyes would start to twitch a little bit, and they would sort of, it was almost like they were entering another, another reality, Now, is that fake? No, it's not fake. It happens. But why does it happen? Because they fast and they pray. And so think about, why do you fast and you pray? What's the value of fasting and praying? Fasting is, why do you fast? Why during Lent do people fast? Yeah, it's repentance. It's not so much, though, Jesus suffered, so I'm going to suffer too, because believe me, you don't suffer like Jesus suffered. But it, it allows you to spend time doing other things. It refocuses your, refocuses your attention. And even, I was, I was stunned as we traveled to Atlanta the past two days, 
I was stunned even, like, if you have to go out for fast food, how chaotic that experience can be. You go into a fast food place and stuff is being spilled and people are knocking into each other with trays. Think about if you didn't go to lunch and you just sort of sat in the car and prayed for a bit, how ordered your life might be. You fast and you pray. And when you do those things, the Lord delivers good gifts. What you shouldn't say is, I'm going to be a mystic. The Lord will choose you if he wants you to be a mystic. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah, you don't, yeah. Yeah, it's like, yeah, you don't go buy a costume for Halloween to be a mystic, you know? Yeah. And that's, yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, so what you shouldn't take, what you should take from this is, is this point. Gratitude for God that he chose people to say stuff in a very interesting way. Because think about the gospel writers at their own time. They said stuff in very interesting ways. And that's why it was so, you know, countercultural when guys spoke. We need people like that today who can speak in a way that addresses culture and gives them Jesus. And so you're not going to be your own mystic, but if the Lord wants to make you that, he may. And the way to start is to fast and to pray. That's a very good thing. And put yourself under the care of someone else. You're not going to become a mystic if you say, I can figure all these out on my own. Okay? Is that your phone? Let's answer it. Maybe it's the Lord. Maybe he wants to make you a mystic. It could happen. So, um, I, boy, there's so much other stuff I wanted to talk about. Like, here's the stuff I had written down. Characteristics of a woman, uh, uniquely feminine. Do you notice Pope Benedict said she's uniquely feminine? And I was thinking about, and think about this on your way home, how we need a feminine presence in the church, and we need a feminine presence in the world to speak the message of hope. You can say stuff very differently than I can say it. I said to Abby as we were house hunting, I said to the woman we were with, I said, she thinks by, I said, she operates by speaking, I operate by thinking. And it was so true. The two days we were there, as we saw homes, what would happen? I would do this, walk around, kind of go like this. How many square feet? Okay, kind of walk around. I'd be upstairs in the attic, and I could hear her down in the living room going, now if we paint this wall and put in new floors, what would it, now think of, now how much do we need to do this, and what do we, and they're talking about paint colors and this and this and this. Here's the thing. I knew the minute I walked in, that was the house I wanted to buy. It took Abby about two days because she actually had to envision what it might look like. We operate very differently. And we talked about this at the marriage retreat we were at, that men and women are meant to complement each other. There's not inequality or inferiority, but meant to complement each other. There are gifts you have that I don't have and gifts that I have that you don't have. And so we need to be able to operate in the world. If it's only men speaking on behalf of the church, um, you only get one side of the story. You only get one side of the story. So uh, use Hildegard as an example. I was happy to see the Pope didn't say pray to her, you know, say a rosary for do anything like that. He basically said she's thoroughly Christocentric, which is a good way to end. Okay? Any questions? Donna, yeah. Oh, I think it was, I think it was the um, page 14. I think he was speaking out against the Pope, and she spoke out against him. So he said, the Pope isn't the Pope, and she said, hey, you're just the king. The Pope is the Pope. That's the section you're talking about? Yeah. You will be sorry for this wicked conduct of the godless who despise me. Listen, O king, if you wish to live, otherwise my sword will pierce you. Oh, okay. Hold on. Oh, yes. Good. Okay. Um, I'll give you a modern-day example, and then we need to wrap up. There's a group in... America right now um, of Catholics 
and I forget what they're called, but they're basically Catholics who want radical reform of the church. And it's often, it's often described this way. They want to go back to, quote unquote, I never use air quotes, that was odd, air quote, <laughs> uh, the reforms of the Second Vatican Council. That was in the 1970s. And part of the thing is people misread the Vatican Council II to say the church did away with all of its traditions there, did away with all of its liturgy. So now you have the Mass in your own language and lay people can be involved and you can have you know, men and women distribute the Eucharist and you can put screens up in your church. If you go into, I'll give you a great example, St. Mike's? Yeah, that is a post-Vatican II church to a T because their idea is that Second Vatican Council was everything. You go to a place like St. Peter's and Paul in Naperville, that is very much a pre-Vatican II church. And the kind of the key difference is, post-Vatican II says, people are the authority, lay people. Pre-Vatican II says, the church is the authority. And these have now fought, and it'll actually come to a head in about four weeks, because there's a new hymnal in the Catholic Church coming out, and it's mandated that every church in the world use this hymnal. From the top down, Pope Benedict has mandated this. Guess what? Some of these post-Vatican II, like St. Mike's type, and I don't know if they are, but I'm giving an example, have said, we're not using it. The Pope said, you are using it. That'll be interesting to see what happens. But this idea of radical reform is still present today. So what happens is there's this group that just met in Detroit, all lay people and a few priests, who have basically said, do away with priestly celibacy, do away with the ordination of men only, do away with the historic liturgy, and do away with sort of the hierarchical structure, bishops, archbishops, cardinals. And they've put these petitions together. And the thing is, in the world, the world of Catholics, they're small potatoes. But that was what was going on at her time as well. And she spoke out against that, even though it may have been her advantage. Because probably what they were advocating was that she have a better place in the church. And she said, no, no, no. I'm in submission to Holy Mother of the Church. So that was, that was the thing. She thought about someone else, not herself. No, this is well before that time. This is this is this is 300 years before. Yeah, yeah. Reformation is 1517-ish, and this is like 1180 or 1170 or something like that. So that was the thing. She stuck up for the church. Okay. All right. Name your kids Hildegard. It'll go well for you. Here we go. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, see you next week. Next chapter, if you can, please.